Hello, my name is Austin Habich, the founder of Think Catholic, your source for Catholic thought with both depth and devotion, and I'd like to thank you for joining us. Joining me is Claire Nowak. Hello. And Dr. Alan Femister. Hello. As well as special guest, Dr. Tom McLaughlin, as today we discuss gravity, and particularly as it bears on teleology or finality, the goal-directedness in things. But first, the Catholic thought on the topic. And the Catholic thought, as it bears on the reality of finality or teleology in things, comes to us from the encyclical Humanae Generis, which states, Philosophy, acknowledged and accepted by the Church, safeguards the the genuine validity of human knowledge, the unshakable metaphysical principles of sufficient reason, causality, and finality, and finally, the mind's ability to attain certain and unchangeable truth. And as a published expert on finality, as it bears on our everyday experience of gravity, Dr. Femister, would you like to introduce our guest? Yes, uh, it's a tremendous honor to be able to uh, introduce uh, Dr. Tom McLaughlin, who was my colleague uh, a while ago at St. John Vianney Theological Seminary in Denver, Colorado, where he's taught since 2002. He's Associate Professor of Philosophy there and Head of the Pre-Theology Cycle his uh, master's and his doctorate at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas, named, of course, after the angelic and universal doctor, St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, uh, Dr. Rothman's interests are particularly focused on natural philosophy, and he always had terrifyingly profound and interesting things to say whenever (laughs) we have faculty colloquia um, in Denver. Um, And... uh, uh, but he has to know about absolutely everything else as well because he has to preside over the philosophy cycle and, and ensure that your future priests know what they're talking about when it comes to reason. Um, uh, so there we are. So, uh, yes, um, and he publishes on these sorts of things all the time. Recently, something just appeared in The Thomist. Um, and uh, so, uh, yes, I'm very much looking forward to finding out whether or not gravity does, in fact, really exist or not. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for joining us uh... Dr. McLaughlin, maybe to kick us off, could you give us maybe yeah. a, a sweeping overview of the difference in the thoughts between Newton, Einstein, and then Aristotle when it comes to the question of gravity? Yeah. Um, so first, thank you very much for that introduction, Alan. It's good <laughs> to hear from you again. Well, and Austin, thank you very much for uh, having me on and, and, and for talking to me here. Mm-hmm. And, and hello, Claire. It's, it's good to talk to the three of you. Mm-hmm. Um, Austin, you and I got interested in talking about this when I was thinking about something called natural place. And natural place is a lot bigger notion in some ways than gravity, but gravity seemed a a good way of focusing uh, um, on this topic. And it's often thought of as something Aristotelian that was disproved by modern science centuries ago. And I, I really don't think that's true. So um, that's kind of where this, this thinking and talking is coming from. And a good way to think about gravity in Aristotle is to begin with the really obvious observation that heavy things fall, they go down. And then if you add to that the fact that the Earth is spherical, by Aristotle's time, the Greek philosophers and some others, some of the mathematicians, for example, knew that the Earth was spherical. And you can see that this raises a question, what does it mean to fall down? What does it mean to go downward? 
um, if the Earth is a sphere. I mean, what's happening on the other side of the Earth, for example? And pre-Socratics and by Aristotle's time, the thought was, well, down means falling toward a center. And then this gets confirmed by a number of observations and by some geometry. So the weight or heaviness then is a kind of tendency to a center. And so um, from there, the step is that the movement of bodies that are falling, that are heavy, that are going downward, is toward an end or a goal or what's technically called a final cause, and that goal is the center. Um, and um, so that's a, a kind of brief introduction to that part of Aristotle. Then Aristotle starts to think about, okay, what is the center? Is it the center of the earth? Is it the center of the universe? Uh, what do we mean by uh, center? And in Aristotle's thought, the center meant the center of the universe. So his vision of the universe was um, uh, spherical in shape. You have uh, any number of celestial spheres that are all revolving around the, the center. And you have a kind of order of places from the outermost sphere to the center. So you've got really... Um, one fixed central point, and that's the point toward which heavy things or earthy matter are falling, and then light things like air have a, an upward tendency, and they move to a kind of equilibrium point between uh, the heavier earthy stuff and, and the moon. So um, kind of two key notions there. Um, this notion of the center as the end or the goal of these sorts of motions, and then um, the, the center understood in a cosmological sense as a unique fixed point uh, that stays as it is in the very center of, of the universe around which the stars and things are revolving. And this notion of natural place then comes in with the idea that certain kinds of elements tended to, in moving, say, to a center if you're earthy matter, or to a place a little removed from the center if you're water, or more upward if you're air or fire, are moving to a place that is fitting or natural to them and completes them. So these places are kind of the goal of their motion and they're the goal for their motion because it is in some way good for them to to be there because it, it completes or perfects them or further actualizes some sort of inherent potency about them. Um, a good way to think about Newton and gravity is to begin with a very different kind of motion. Um, instead of thinking of the falling motion of heavy bodies is to think about uniform motion in a straight line. So something moving in a straight line, same direction, constant speed. And that's the basic fundamental motion for Newton and for physics for a couple of centuries, for a little before then, for a couple of centuries afterwards, and in a, in a way even still today. Uh, there's lots of reasons for thinking that, and in, in part, 
um, the Copernican Revolution, which viewed the Earth is now orbiting around the Sun as opposed to the other way around, the Sun orbiting the Earth. That revolution really um, necessitates or motivates the need for a new kind of physics. And there's a lot to talk about there, but I'm going to kind of skip over it. Um, but part of that movement toward a new physics is to view motion in a straight line at a constant speed as your basic fundamental motion. And now if you look around, um, lots of things aren't moving that way. Um, if you throw a rock, it, it goes off in an arc. Uh, the moon, the sun, the stars seem to be going in circles. And so why is that? Well, um, the thought here is that, well, something must be making it go off of that straight line, must be drawing it or pulling it away um, from the way that it naturally wants to go straight forward. Um, so most of the motions that we're looking at are in fact a combination of two different tendencies. The natural tendency to continue at a straight line and constant speed, and then some other tendency that's produced by something acting on it that moves it off that straight line course. Um, the famous sort of story about Newton watching apples falling off the apple trees um, is a really, whether it's true or not, it's a very nice image that gets us to how he's thinking here. That he's looking at sort of the apple, so to speak, falling off the trees and falling downward. And then he's looking up at the moon and he's wondering why the moon doesn't do the same thing. And he's going to come to the conclusion that the moon is, in fact, doing the same thing. It's falling. But falling here has a kind of different meaning. At the same time that it's falling, it's moving in a straight line at a tangent to the direction of fall. So it's like it's going one step sideways and one step down. And the result is a very nice equilibrium or balance point. And um, he thinks that if you throw a rock and you go sideways and then arcs, you can kind of see the two things even in that motion of, of the rock. Um, if you fire cannonballs at increasing velocity, they go further and further and further. And he thinks you can actually generate an orbit if you could uh, get a cannonball that went fast enough. If you fired it perpendicular to the ground or to where you were standing, you would eventually generate a, a kind of um, orbit. So he's taking, and that's, and so he comes to think of gravity as a kind of force drawing something off of a kind of straight line that it would normally pursue or from a state of, of, of rest. Now, there is a notion of nature in Newton that is at work here that um, becomes important. Is Newton tended to think that what was natural to a body or to something was what it did when it was left alone. So if you leave something, uh, a physical body alone, it's either going to stay where it is or it's going to continue moving in a straight line at constant speed. So if, you're, if 
it's doing something different, if it's changing course, if it's speeding up, then something's got to be acting on it or pulling on it, and that's not its nature, okay? So there was a tendency in Newton to view gravitational motion as, well, literally forced or, or compelled against the straight line or rest tendency of a body. And that's very different from Aristotle, who would have thought that the natural tendency of a heavy body is just to go down, uh, fall downward. And if it's light, it's, it's to rise upward. So you have somewhat different notions of nature here and somewhat different beginning and in points. Um, now, if we think a little bit about, okay, for Newton, um, now we've got gravity and we're thinking of gravity as a force and we ask ourselves, okay, where, how do we understand falling motion, okay? It's a force acting on it. We call that force gravity. And Newton thought, um, usually we talk about in terms of gravitational attraction, two bodies are attracted to each other um, according to their gravity, the force of gravity drawing them together. But if you really work that out, what you have in Newton is also the notion of a center of gravity. So that when a body is falling because of its gravity, it's also falling towards a center. That's a kind of um, similarity, actually, between Newton and um, Aristotle. So if we think of um, the center of gravity of the Earth, it's somewhere near the geometrical center of the Earth. If we think of the center of gravity of the Earth and Moon, it's a little below the surface of the Earth, and the Moon is actually in, uh, orbiting that point, and the Earth, in a way, is orbiting around it as well. If you think of the solar system, you know, we say it's sun-centered, and that's a kind of shorthand way for saying that the center of gravity is within or right near the edge of the sun, and all the bodies, including the solar system, including the sun, go around that central point, even though it's located right within the sun. If you could look at a double star system, um, you would find two stars orbiting around each other. You would find that the center of gravity is actually at some place located between them. And that's what they're both orbiting around, um, and that's sort of... Um, if you could drop something and let it just fall, something would fall toward a, a center of gravity. And even if you have, uh, like in Newton, when you calculate the force of gravity and you have two bodies, what you tend to do is you assume that all the mass is concentrated at the center. So even in the equations uh, for gravity, you have this notion of a center that's sort of silently present in the uh, equations. So the notion of a gravitational center shows up in Newton. And like I said, that's a kind of affinity to Aristotle. The, there's a, um, a major difference. For Aristotle, you have one center of gravity at the very center of the universe. For Newton, you have a whole multiplicity of different centers of gravity. 
Um, the Earth has its own center of gravity. The Earth-Moon system has a center of gravity. The solar system has a center of gravity. And you can work outward from there. And they're, as it were, even nested with, within each other. Um, that's a very big kind of cosmological difference, and it's going to raise a number of problems that maybe we'll get to um, later. When you think of natural place or an explanation in terms of uh, natural place, when you're explaining motions in terms of natural place, you're really explaining it in terms of final causality or in terms of a goal. This was one of the things that is largely rejected at the time of the scientific revolution is final causality or goal-directed or indirected um, activity, that something was acting for the sake of, of an end. So that notion is not really invoked um, by most physicists and other scientists in thinking about gravity in a Newtonian sense. But the odd thing is it's there. And by there, I mean that you do have a center that is the constant tendency of bodies is to gravitate toward that center or, or whatever center is, is relevant to them. And most importantly for Newton, Newton said he didn't know the cause of gravity. We don't know the cause of gravity. So he's really understanding gravity and the way the force of gravity works with regard to that center and to motion toward a center. So it's, even though I think that explicitly the sciences don't appeal to final causes, and even though they disavow them and many, many scientists will, it's often implicit in what they do. And so part of what I want to argue is to make what's implicit explicit and to try to indicate why you do have goal-directed activity in gravity, especially Newtonian gravity, and why that is in some sense good for uh, a falling body. And I'll just come back to that um, a little bit uh, later. Um, just briefly on Einstein in, in gravity, a good way to think about gravity is in a way, actually, oddly enough, to go back to Aristotle and begin with falling. And think about a falling motion. You know, I used love um, amusement parks, and when I got was writing my doctoral dissertation, I once took my nephew to amusement, an amusement park and said, look, I'll pay if you go to the amusement park with me, but I need to read all, go on all the rides that have me falling. And I just went on anything that fell. And when you fall, you don't feel any pull. Okay, you're not being pulled down. When we feel the pull of gravity, it's when we're acting against gravity, not when we're going with it. And if you look at astronauts in the space station, for example, um, they're floating weightlessly. Um, they're not, they don't have any experience of being pulled. And that's not because there's no gravity. It's because they're in what's called free fall. They're allowed to just fall freely without something pulling them, resisting them or, or holding them, them up. And it's not even just, um, it, it is our experience, but you can also, if you want, do a test. It's really hard to weigh somebody on the space station. You can't stand on a scale. You don't have any weight to make an impression on the scale, so you have to find other ways to weigh somebody. 
I mean, the same experience if you jumped out of a tree with a scale tossed to your, tied to your feet or something. It's not going to show any uh, any sort of, of, of weight. So Einstein really focuses on this, and it's part of what leads him to a new conception of gravity. And he starts to think of gravity again in um, natural terms, um, that it is the nature of something to follow the curvature of, of space-time. And we'll get into that in uh, just a little bit. So instead of seeing gravity and inertia in a kind of opposition as Newton tended to, um, you get a unification of them in Einstein, of the natural tendency to go in a straight line and the natural tendency to gravitate. Um, so that's a fairly um, significant change if you're if you're thinking about gravity and natural and natural place is to be able to view gravity. Oh, that falling motion is natural to the thing. Um, so let me leave that there. Now the other thing that's hang problem that's hanging out there coming from Newton is um, the reason Aristotle thought that you could only have one center to the universe, one of the reasons, is because he thought everything that is heavy is just going to fall together into that one place. Um, you're not going to get a multiplicity of places because if you have like three places, they're all going to tend to fall together. And that is one of the arguments he gives. Something like that shows back up in Newton. Um, not explicitly with Newton himself, but in later physicists, they're thinking about something called Olber's paradox. And they're wondering if you have lots of centers of gravity, why that doesn't happen, why things um, don't just all fall together, or the standard answer was because there's just uh, heavy bodies extended ad infinitum, and so the ones far away are pulling on the ones nearby, and the result of that is it keeps everything from just falling together into one big mess. The problem is when you work out the mathematics of that, then nothing should fall gravitationally at all. That The result would be you wouldn't have gravitational motion, that everything would just be pulled apart. So that was a kind of paradox. One of the things that happens with general relativity in Einstein and Big Bang cosmology is the notion that the whole universe is expanding. And this is part of an account of how you can get different centers of gravity or a multiplicity of centers of gravity, um, but they don't all fall together and they don't pull everything apart. At the highest levels, you don't have a center of gravity anymore you have something very, very different that has to be ex explained and approached in, in a rather different um, different way. So um, that's just, um, without going into more detail, I think that sets us up to talk about um, natural place in a more contemporary context. Uh, Doc, so the, the question I would ask, well, first, just a, a preliminary comment. Um, thank you um, for that overview of those uh, three great thinkers. Um, very concise and, and intelligible. I think it's important when we look at Einstein's work, for example, that we make sure to draw a distinction between his math and then the interpretation of the math. So 
you know, sure. you know, his math, of course, we're using all the time. I think uh, the most common example is a GPS software. We're going to be using his math for that to work accurately. Uh, but the question is, is always the worldview that these scientists are creating based on their math. And so it's, it's the worldview that we're really looking at here. And the, the second thing I would, I would mention before I ask my question is, as C.S. Lewis, he speaks in Mere Christianity, he says, uh, when Jesus preached the gospel, there was an open ear to it because people knew that they were broken and they needed a Savior. But he says, today, we almost need to preach the bad news before people will listen to the good news. So I, I think there's something similar to be said here with Einstein, that we almost have to show that Einstein's worldview doesn't work out before someone will even entertain different options or theories when it comes to gravity. So along those lines, Doc, I just want to quote him uh, in his work on special relativity. Uh, he says, this is Einstein, he says, our universe behaves analogously to a surface which is irregularly curved in its individual parts, something like the rippled surface of a lake. The four-dimensional mode of consideration of the world is natural on the theory of relativity, since according to this theory, time is robbed of its independence. And so I've I thought that the two big objections that have been leveled against Einstein might be found in this one passage. In the first, it sounds like space is being made out to be a substance in itself, the analogy of the mm -hmm. rippled lake. And if space is a thing, then, of course, the question follows in of what space is it in and then what space would that be in? And you either have an infinite regress of spaces within space or you have something that's ultimately in nothing but nothing can be in nothing, and nothing can come out of nothing. So there's the first objection I see. And then the second one would be in regard to time, because uh, Einstein himself is going to say in his letter to Vero that those who believe in physics, for those who believe in physics, the separation between past, present, and future has only the importance of an admittedly tenacious illusion. And so some people have said, if you're going to put time on the map, making a four-dimensional world, then we're stuck in a constant frozen now. So between those two objections, Doc, which would you say is the more lethal one to the, the worldview coming out of Einstein? Or, um, yeah. Um, they're pretty closely related, Austin. Let me just see if I can ad address both of them because they're, they're kind of intertwined. Um, I was interested, am interested in astronomy a lot, and that's because I was one of these kids who was real little when the first man landed on the moon, and that was just an amazing thing to see. If you read astronomers, they don't talk like Einstein. Um, when they talk about the, the universe and the Big Bang, they talk about it being so many billion years old, and it's a very, the thinking is, is very different. And I would just encourage anybody um, uh, who's interested in this to just read astronomers on this, especially, and especially if you're thinking like when I was 20 years ago and you're reading astronomers and you're reading physicists, it's like two different people, talk, two different kinds of people talking. And the sense of time among astronomers is very different. I mean, they just talk about the age of the universe they talk about the universe changing over time, and they don't tend to, they don't talk like the block universe sort of thing. You do find that in physicists. Now that's been changing a little bit. Some that sort of split in the way the two science, different kinds of scientists think. 
But just to open people up a little bit to this, uh, I might call attention to that. I think the other thing to keep in mind is that Newton is in the background to all this. So for Newton, you ha had a, Newton thought there was something called absolute space, space that existed um, in itself separately from um, bodies. It was a kind of infinite empty container in which you could uh, bodies moved. And then time existed in itself, um, separate from space and separate from bodies as well. It's very different from uh, Aristotle, who thought that time was dependent on um, motion. So for physicists coming out of the, the Newtonian revolution and then a couple centuries after that, and, in it, and even more so thinking mathematically, it's very natural to think in terms of space. Um, in Einstein, you give up the notion of any sort of absolute center uh, to the universe. That's consistent with Newton. But now there's not even an absolute center with regard to gravitating um, bodies. So without fixed spatial reference points, places are constantly changing on you. So if you want to know where you're located, you have to also know when you are there. So if we can give just a very visual example, if you think of continental drift and the continents all changing places on the Earth, okay, um, where Colorado was, you know, 100 million years ago, is very different from where it is now. So if you want to specify your location and you say, well, I'm in what would be Denver, Colorado, well, where is that? It's not at the same latitude and longitude. So you've got to include a time reference in order to be able to locate yourself. So you have to locate yourself, not just where am I in time, like 1000 AD or 2000 AD, but I need that even to know where my spatial location is because your places are constantly or slowly changing um, on you. And so that becomes part of the rationale for connecting space and time, for seeing space and time as related. Now, the, um, the predominant interpretation uh, among physicists is perhaps been to think of time then is like a spatial dimension, but like it in a very strong sense that all times are sort of realized and you get a kind of four-dimensional block rather than the change of a three-dimensional um, whole. Okay. And in a sense, you you have a spatialization of time, and there was a famous debate between Einstein and Henry Bergson on, on this sort of stuff early in the 20th century. Um, what I would want to suggest is it's not just because it's a mathematical approach. Um, I think that's actually an interpretation that's mistaken. And what I would appeal to is um, some of us, I know when I was a kid, I loved to draw timelines. You can draw a line and you can mark different times on it. You can draw somebody else's timeline on it and mark different times on it and so forth. But it never occurred to me to spatialize time and think that all those times 
we're somehow existing, um, and, and, but the, we're, we're existing and that we were just moving to different times, sort of like we moved to different places or something of that, that sort. I mean, it just never occurred to me. And we use spatial metaphors in talking about time a lot. We talk about a long time. We talk about a short time, a short time, that sort of thing. Now, to an Aristotelian, this makes perfect sense because motion is measured by uh, place by distances traversed. Time depends upon motion, so it makes sense that you can use distances both to refer to motion and to refer to time and vice versa. Um, and we do that. We talk about light years, which is a measure of a distance, but it's the distance something can go in a year. And astronomers have been doing that for a while and don't have much trouble with thinking of it in terms of a block universe. So I would want to say that even though that's the kind of preeminent interpretation, that I think it's a mistaken one, and there's a very different way of looking at it, and there have been a number of people who've looked at it in, in different ways, and um, a somewhat long discussion that I won't go into, but one of the keys that enables the space-time vision work is the, the constancy of the speed of light. And you can convert the speed of light into, um, uh, uh, you can convert into a distance or into a time. And that enables you to find a way to speak of of times in terms of, of distances. And even in the equations of general relativity and special relativity, when you do this, there's a big difference between the time factor and the distance factors. The time factor is, has a, a minus sign in front of it and has the, the speed of light, C, the constant, as um, multiplied by it. So it's even different in the mathematics. Okay, so. Uh, that said, I think the space question, uh, I think the argument that you gave for that is, is good. Um, the question is, is there something that, um, as it were, a kind of first or fundamental body that is the kind of boundary of the universe um, so that um, it's not space that we're moving in, but kind of in some sort of ultimate uh, container. Um, and I would incline for something more like the latter and would point to things like dark energy. And even Einstein seemed to come back to some sort of view of the ether, um, a very different kind of ether later on. And you can find different sorts of statements in Einstein on that kind of uh, on, the, on the question you were raising. So um, I spent much more time on the second question than on the first. I think the second one has a sort of answer I was indicating. The first one, it's a little harder to see what would the alternative be. Okay, what kind of entity bounds the universe so that the space that we're talking about is a feature of that sort of entity. And I just threw out dark matter as a, a dark energy as a possible candidate. That would be sort of my initial statement on that. Uh, thank you, Doc. So if, um, if we're looking at these different theories of gravity, uh, if things don't fall because of a warped space, 
And if things don't fall by a kind of external pull, uh, and Newton will even <laughs> explicitly mention a, a subtle spirit causing these gravitational pulls, then how would natural motion uh, give an account for gravitational motion? Okay. Um, so in Aristotelian thought, efficient causes and final causes are correlatives, okay? Which, so an efficient cause is what we more typically think of as a cause. We think of it as an agent um, that acts on a thing and makes it do something. And then a final cause is uh, the goal or the end. And in Aristotle, those are, and for Aquinas, those are correlative. And what he means by that is that every agent acts for an end. And without an end, there is no action. Okay. So there has to be some inclination to an end or else you can't act at all. Um, just to kind of get at that in a really short way, imagine standing on somewhere and try to act without aiming or having some sort of intention or directionality. And on the other hand, if there's no efficient cause, nothing gets done because there's no agent that can make it, uh, make the action happen. So an account of motion is going to have to include both efficient causality and it's going to have to include final causality. And the focus in the sciences has been on efficient causality. So we speak of force as a kind of efficient cause. Um, base time's a funny one because sometimes it's, thought of as an efficient cause, but sometimes it's treated more as a final cause when, it, when you get uh, language like following the curvature of space-time. But the way I think that I talked about it in Newton is that um, we can think of gravity as uh, a kind of force in some sense, a kind of agency that draws things downward or toward a center. But then, in terms of final causes, you have to think, I think, I believe the final, the, the, the center is the final cause. Yet that's where the end is, that's where it's headed. And what I tried to um, argue in a place is, is that um, that center, um, that center of, of, in terms of speaking of the center of gravity, is that the center of gravity is, um, good, um, and, and that gives you a much more robust sort of sense of um, uh, a final cause, that it's good for um, falling, for massive bodies. And here is sort of um, part of how I was trying to argue for that. If we just imagine a single isolated body, it's not going to gravitate for Newton um, or Einstein either. Um, except it's parts holding it together. Now, if we introduce other bodies, some we've now got something new going on that the bodies are now going to be drawn to each other. So there is some sort of capacity in the body, in these massive bodies by which they are now drawn to each other. It's a new thing. So there is, in Aristotelian language, there's a kind of actuation of a potency. 
that bodies mutually determine, interdetermine uh, a center of gravity and they move toward that, they gravitate. And that is a kind of, of, of good. It's a further actuation of a capacity that was, as it were, uh, dormant on them. And if we think of good here as a thing actually being preserved in being or in terms of actualizing its potentialities, I think you can get uh, a kind of um, sense of that. Um, the other way you can think about that is that what gravity does is it tends to bring bodies together. They fall toward each other and they're unified in various ways. A single body may be held together by the gravity of its parts. Several bodies can merge or collide to form a single body. Several bodies held together in orbit, so you get a, a solar system, you get a galaxy. And so through the unity, through falling toward that gravitational center or being drawn to it, you get a, a kind of what I would call a further fulfillment. And the way I usually put it is to speak analogically and say mass is social by nature. Togetherness is the very nature of mass. And that's part of what you see in gravity focused on a uh, common uh, center of, of, of gravity. Now, it's a very low-level kind of good, but we're talking about a very low-level kind of being where you suddenly have a possession of a good initially outside of itself that draws you into a kind of union um, that we see in stars, galaxies, solar systems, and so forth. And in the thought of the ancients and Augustine and Aquinas, gravity was viewed as a kind of natural love. And here they're thinking analogically. Okay, it's an analogy. Okay, it's not meant to be uh, the kind of love a human being experiences, but there's an analogy um, to it. And in a way, Newtonian gravity and to some extent, uh, Einstein, gives you even a better image of that because now it's mutual. All bodies determine, uh, in, in Newtonian, determine a kind of center towards which they move. Okay? Aquinas expressed the idea in terms of a connaturality, that natural love was the love that something, the, the appetite or the draw, tendency toward something that was um, of the same nature or fitting with the nature of the thing that was drawn. So if you think of the center of mass, that's determined by all the surrounding masses, including the mass of the falling body that we have in mind. And you can even think of the center of masses where it acts as if all bodies were um, centered there. So it is a kind of connatural center towards which um, bodies have a relationship, okay? Um, and it's a very dynamical kind of relationship. And it would fit this notion that Augustine and Aquinas have of, uh, of a kind of natural love that, as it were, uh, helps hold the, the universe um, together. So, uh, um, and then, once you get that, once you have that sort of, um, as it were, basis or order of bodies, 
then you can build a larger order on top of that. And here's what I mean. So you have the different parts of the Earth gravitating and falling together, and you form a planet. And then given uh, then what you have in that planet is you have a kind of natural order. You, you get the, plant, the, the different elements separate out some, so that you get nickel iron in the core, you get silicates after that, and then above that you've got water and air. So you have a kind of natural continuum of the different elements, each falling into its uh, place. And there's a lot of mixing there and other things like that. And that's true of most of the other planets. The natural orders are um, somewhat uh, different. And we can think of, you may say, well, how is that fulfilling to um, nickel iron to be in the center and so on and so forth? And the example I like to give is um, with water, okay? And to the way you can think of a natural place with regard to something like um, water. So, for example, um, water's been on the Earth's surface for most of its history. That's not true of Venus. You know, on the Earth, water exists in all three states and interacts in all three states, liquid, solid, gas. It doesn't do that on Mars anymore. On the Earth, it forms oceans under the ice um, like it does on Jupiter's moon Europa, but it's also on the planetary surface, which it does nowhere else in the solar system. When you gather water into great bodies, the oceans, the seas, and the lakes, you get a more manifest idea of what water is and what it can be. You see ripples, you see waves, you see tides, other kinds of movement. When water pools in great basins, it slows the process of evaporation, it conserves water by reducing the surface area per unit volume. Um, when you put water together, water molecules together, um, they don't divide um, is, is very easily. You have a certain surface tension which you have when you have many of them together. So water has these many natural capacities that are actualized and they're manifest on the Earth. And water gets to do cool things on the Earth because it's very chemically reactive. It's very mobile. You have water cycles. You have this relationship to living things. So on the Earth, water can be more fully what it is than any other place in the solar system. Now, there may be other planets in the galaxy in which that's also true. Um, and so what we would say is, look, water is a good place, though it's not the only good place. I mean, the Earth is a good place, but not the only good place for water to be. Um, by contrast, you know, if you're really close to the sun, uh, you know, it's not a good place for water to be. It, it vaporizes and moves away. Um, so. This is part of the, the sort of argument to kind of rehabilitate a notion of natural place. It's to begin with mass, the notion, the idea of centers of gravity, to speak of them as good in terms of um, the fitness for heavy, for uh, massive bodies, for the unities that they form, for the places that they then establish for the various elements and chemicals, and then the fulfillment that those chemicals can have in different places. So, Dr. McLaughlin, I hear you saying that gravitational movement is movement towards a good. You mentioned a further actuality, a further yeah, u yeah. A unity. And so these inanimate things are pursuing goods, but obviously they're, they're doing them without thinking. And so from this right. point, it, Aquinas is going to pick up what, what will be his fifth proof uh, for God, which I'll quote here. He says, 
Now, whatever lacks intelligence cannot move towards an end unless it be directed by some being endowed with knowledge and intelligence as the arrow is shot to its mark by the archer. Therefore, some intelligent being exists by whom all natural things are directed to their end, and this being we call God. Now, Doc, I would like to hear kind of your thoughts on that argument and gravity viewed as a natural motion as a, a point of departure for that argument. Do you, do you feel like it's, it's viable? Yes. Um, so one way to think about what I'm doing is I'm focusing um, especially on that first premise. We see that things which lack intelligence, such as natural bodies, act for an end. And I'm trying to say, yeah, we see it in gravity. And um, if we look very carefully and interpret uh, a lot of the science well, we actually see a better account of it than we saw in in Aristotle. So that's the sort of focus uh, of of what I've been doing is really to um, focus attention on that first premise and make a good case for it. Because what's happened is, for the most part, this is not how we think about the natural world. We don't think of it in terms of final causality. And that's partly a fallout of the scientific revolution and the giving up of thinking in terms of final causality in nature. Um, Arguably, the rejection or abandonment of final causality in nature that rejection arguably had a far greater and more far-reaching revolutionary import than any of the political revolutions that have happened since. It's huge. And so part of, of where this argument lands is to um, work against that air to point to a truth that, no, we see um, – goal-directed activity by things that don't have any intelligence um, in the most familiar inanimate motions around us. So um, that would be my, my kind of initial comment. And then the, the sort of idea here is if you have final causes or action for an end, no matter – by an unintelligent thing – Uh, No matter how much you twist and turn, I would like to argue, that is going to require some kind of foreknowledge or some kind of intelligence that can map a thing with what it does not have and provide a a kind of way to get there. Now, that's not to say that that God is pushing um, a falling body. Um, No, God builds a nature into it by which it has an inclination toward an end, but event, but eventually, if you think you're going to have an have to have an intelligence behind that, can, they can map sort of thing uh, where a thing is to where um, it's going to go, which doesn't ex- exist yet. He's got to build that sort of intelligibility, that sort of um, inclination uh, into it. Now, how he does that is is, is, is sort of a, a marvelous thing and, and, and quite a story. But at some point, you're going to have to bring intelligence into the picture. And when you do that, you want to be very careful. You don't want to bring intelligence into the picture as if it's some kind of secondary cause, like a human intelligence 
that is working within the universe and filling up gaps or something. No, this is an intelligence that is, as it were, utterly transcends the universe and doesn't doesn't um, uh, need not work within the universe as if it is just another um, force or something of that of that sort. And that's going to look very different. Yeah, I wondered um, what sort of resources you had um, in mind that we could, that maybe for, for those of us who uh, don't have the same, you know, scientific and philosophic vocabulary, um, but resources that we could use to help explain this concept to especially younger uh, people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um... You know, that that's a really good question. <laughs> and um, unfortunately, this is a little bit like the 400-year-old pink elephant in the room that just hasn't been really talked about a whole lot. So the kind of resources we want are pretty thin, and they're kind of here and there. So it's, it's hard... Um, it's hard to make, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of recommendation that you're asking for. I can give you one that, that I, I like. Um, it's by a guy named Christopher Baglow, and it's called Faith, Science, and Reason, Theology on the Cutting Edge. And he has been especially involved in secondary education on science in a more secondary context. And the book is published by the Midwest Theological Forum. Now, it tends to be a little bit more big picture than we're going into here, Um, but that's kind of a a pretty good overview of some of these kinds of um, questions and issues. One of the problems here in terms of explaining things uh, to uh, in a non-technical context to uh, anybody that you happen to be talking to casually, is that you're not trying to explain the theistic implications of a of a model that is agreed and established that you're trying to show, in fact, implies certain things about finality and and causation, because the 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 model you're describing is is in the process of shifting and being redesigned, you know, and it's probably not going to be in place for hundreds of years. It's probably going to carry on shifting and being redesigned. So it's, it's ve- the 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 early modern revolution you were describing has established itself psychologically in people's minds, but the but the the potential the the, the the positive potential of, of where things have shifted in recent decades is hard to marshal in a, in a conceptually communicable way. Uh, I'm keenly aware of that. <laughs> <laughs> I find this very difficult. Um, so to give you just kind of a sense of this, uh, I had a good friend who actually had argued against natural place and um, had done so in a very Newtonian context. And in part, um, I got even more interested in the course of disagreeing with him, even in a Newtonian context. And 
a lot of this had to do with simply the way that Newtonian physics had been taught to him and, and many other people. And kind of what I want to emphasize is it's not like I'm saying things that aren't in the physics. That when I talk about a center of gravity, that's really there in Newton. And um, when I say that Newton is actually understanding gravity teleologically, I think that's really there. I mean, because he doesn't know the efficient cause. So um, I I think you can work with a Newtonian uh, model, and you can contrast that with Aristotle. So I and and to some extent with general relativity and special relativity and Einstein. I think the problem actually more than the fact that the models are slowly changing, is that they're so complicated. Um, it's just not an easy thing to understand Newton or to understand Einstein well enough to talk about this, let alone understand it, um, and, you know, be able to explain it to somebody. Um, and I don't know of an easy way around that problem. Well, thank you, Dr. McLaughlin. What I've gathered from our conversation is that gravity is a lot more nuanced and honestly mysterious than I think we tend to think. And even more than that, as I believe you're speaking to here, that it is evidence for finality or teleology. And further, as Aquinas thought, points to the existence of God. And so thank you for your work, and uh, thank you for joining us, Dr. McLaughlin. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, appreciate it, Austin. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Thomas. Nice to talk to you again. Okay, good to talk to you too, Alan, and good to meet you, Claire. This is Think Catholic. My name is Austin Habish with Claire and Dr. Alan Fimister with special guest Dr. Tom McLaughlin. And thanks again for joining us.